Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm here with my co-host, the amazing Ellen McGirt. And Ellen, I'm really eager to do this podcast today because our guest, the CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, is in about the toughest industry to be in right now, travel and hospitality, but also because I've always found him to be one of the most thoughtful CEOs I know about leadership. He's a real student of leadership, a scholar. Co-sign on all of that, Alan. You know, Brian seems so fluent in the ideas around stakeholder thinking, which is really something we need to be talking about more these days and the responsibility of business to improve society. And I think it's a pretty interesting tension to build a billion-dollar business and rethink capitalism. And I'm also, I know you're going to do this, I'm going to shout out his RISD roots here. (laughs) I loved hearing him talk about how learning creative redesign helped him see ideas that are hiding in plain sight, like a company that invites people to sleep in strangers' houses. And I'm curious how it's helping him now. The Rhode Island cabal lives on, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did go to school right up the hill from him, so I'm proud. So let's dive right in. Brian Chesky, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Alan. So the last three months have to have been brutal for you. I mean, your business pretty much disappeared for a while, didn't it? Having started Airbnb, I wasn't quite sure I would ever do something as hard again in my life as helping start my Airbnb with my two friends. And it turns out then you're a CEO of a travel company preparing to go public and there's a pandemic and all travel stops, that that's actually really, really difficult. So yeah, it's been really hard. Where are we now? How much of it has come back in the last few weeks? Oh, it's we're a much better place than we were. I mean, it was really harrowing and, and, and nerve wracking. I mean, the, the way to think about it, it was kind of like, you know, I was a captain of a ship and it was like a nice ship and it was really sunny. And all of a sudden, like a torpedo hit the side of the ship. And we lost vast majority of our business. I mean, global travel came to a standstill. People stopped getting on planes, borders closed. You had two and a half billion people shelter in place. And all of a sudden, it felt like it took me 12 years for for my partners and I to build this business. And we lost most of it in four or five weeks. It was really, really difficult. And there's a lot of things that have happened, but we were expecting this storm to go on for years. We didn't know how long it was going it was going to go on. I don't think anyone quite did. And something kind of remarkable started to happen. The business has started recovering. Um, it's not fully recovered, but it's recovering way faster than anyone of us imagined. To give you an example, at the end of March, in early June, we did more business in the United States than this time last year. And if you had Whoa. told me that that would happen even a month ago or two months ago, I would have never imagined it, but it it speaks to something. What it speaks to is after months and months of people being sheltered in place, essentially caged up in their homes, people want to get out of their house. They do want to travel, but they don't want to get on planes. They don't want to cross borders. They don't want to travel for business. They don't really even want to go to cities, but what they do want to do is they want to get in a car and they want to travel up to 200 miles, maybe 300 miles, which is a little over a tank of gas. And they want to stay in a home because what they want is the thing that feels like it's been taken away from us. The thing that I think people feel like it's been taken away from us these last few months is this sense of connection and control. 
that just feels like the world's out of control and we feel suddenly disconnected and isolated. Yep. And I think that we're yearning for something much deeper. And I think that's, that's what we started Airbnb by doing. And in the face of this crisis, we've had to get back to that basic idea of connection and belonging. And I think that's kind of what people want right now. But Brian, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I really want to check that because that's just an amazing statistic you gave us. I mean, I know, you know, you look at hotels, most hotels are only back 50, 60 percent of where they were. You feel oh, like yeah. you're all the way back to where you were last year. Let me, let me be very clear. In the United States, um, this is also true in France and other countries, but let's keep it real simple. United States. We are above where we were last year, and and it could we could get even higher than what we would have forecast before COVID. Now I want to I want to clarify this because I don't want to get overly exuberant. I, if I've learned anything these last few months, things are never quite as good as they seem or as bad as they seem. We were not nearly as doomed three months ago. Well, I was reading articles. Will Airbnb exist? I didn't think four <laughs> months ago people would be writing articles where Airbnb <laughs> exists. So I want to clarify by saying like no mission accomplished. We're not back. There's been no comeback yet. It's too early. It may be pent-up demand. In other words, there may be this false pent-up demand. We don't know. But I can tell you, there is no model that we or any bankers you worked with had that had any recovery like this even happening in this year, let alone in the beginning of June. It has exceeded kind of everything we expected. And we're just kind of trying to play it by ear. I don't want to take it for granted because I also know how volatile the world is right now. But I think it's tapping into something fundamental. People want to explore. They want to be connected. They want to be with each other. You know, when something gets taken away from you, you tend to value what you still have. And so, yeah, that's been pretty crazy. Any innovations come out of this? Oh, yeah. I know that you you raised some capital and you've certainly had time to think. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe I can tell you the innovations. There's been about a half a dozen of them along the journey. And almost every innovation came out of a crisis. In other words, it was like our back was to the wall. We had a crisis. And out of the crisis, we found our way into an innovation. The first thing that happened was um, COVID happened and we got over a billion dollars of cancellations. This was a crisis. Guests wanted to cancel reservations and hosts were expecting this money to pay for their homes. This was a total no-win situation. And we ultimately decided to make a principled decision. I've learned the hard way in crisis that you can either make a business decision or a principled decision. And a lot of times when leaders sometimes regret how they behave in a crisis, they made a business decision. A business decision I would essentially describe as trying to optimize for the best outcome. In times of crisis, it's really hard to know what will lead to the best outcome. And so what you really have to do is go back to your principles. What do you stand for? Who do you care for? And we made a bunch of principles. We said, we're going to take care of our stakeholders. We're going to cut cost. We're going to make sure we raise money and we're going to redefine our business, but we're going to do it with every one of our stakeholders in mind. And the first was our guest. And we put the health and safety of our guests first. We did not want them being put in harm's way because they felt like they couldn't cancel reservation and then therefore they travel. And by traveling, they basically spreading this virus. So we overrode the host cancellation policy. We think it was the right thing to do, gave our guests their money back. But this led to a whole uproar. Host, we're having a huge economic shortfall, and they needed this money to pay for their homes. So then we did the next bold thing. We took $250 million of our own money. And I'll say, even for a company like Airbnb, 
that was a lot of money because we were burning a lot of money. Every dollar counts when you're burning a lot of money. And we took $250 million of our money and we just gave it to host. We did not expect the money back. We advanced it to them as a percent of the cancellation payment. Hey, Brian, let me just check the math on that if I can. So you said there were a billion dollar in cancellation. Yeah, about a billion, a little more. Um, and so we basically- You covered a quarter of that. About a quarter. The math is a little bit more specific than that. Yeah, but we covered about a quarter of it. Um, if we could have covered all of it, I would have, but we were not in a financial position to send a billion dollars. So we felt like this was the most we could do. And we felt like, I, I told the host, we're going to do everything we can for you now. I also got to balance our shareholders and other stakeholders, but we always have to look the eye of a, of a stakeholder say, we're going to do the most we can for you. And then we also created a relief fund. Our employees donated a million dollars of their own money through travel credit to give to host. Joe and I decided let's add a zero. So we added another $9 million, and we created a $10 million basically grant program for Superhost, a Superhost relief fund. It sends $17 million. We've dispersed that money. So then we did that. The next thing we realized is, hey, not a lot of people are traveling, but we can still be useful in this crisis. And so we realized like there were a number of companies that are manufacturers and what do they do? They're making ventilators. We're not a manufacturer, so we can't be useful in that way. But you know what we do have? We have 7 million homes. So way in one way we can be useful in this crisis is, is to provide housing for frontline workers in need. And so we made a commitment to provide housing for 100,000 frontline workers, basically nurses, firefighters, doctors, people on scene or people that don't want to stay with their family and get them sick. And we had two 200,000 people list their homes. So that was what we did with Frontline Stays. Next, we had to shut down our experiences business because we didn't want people gathering in person. And our host came to us. He said, we'd love to offer experiences online. So in only 14 days, we developed and launched an entire new category, online experiences, which are basically one-hour experiences where you can have an experience of an Olympic athlete and you do it on Zoom with other guests. You can have a baking class. You can do like a Broadway performers who are shut down or doing experiences. And all of a sudden, it became our fastest growing product ever. We weren't really expecting that. We did a million dollars of bookings, you know, right mm -hmm. after we, you know, in the time since we launched. And uh, so we think that's actually a pretty big category. So these are just some of the things to answer your question about innovations that we've done. And all that was even before we had to do a layoff. So it was just in the wake of a crisis. It was like every day, 18 hours a day, really seven days a week, just working around the clock. Because I felt like so much of how a company handles the crisis is how the leader handles the crisis. And so much of how the leader handles the crisis is their psychology. If the leader is panicked, does not know what to do or thinks they're doomed, the company becomes doomed. The psychology of the organization takes on and mirrors the psychology leader. So if the leader has a psychology that every crisis is an opportunity, that everything bad that happened to you actually is for a reason and it's good, and by the way, it's just perspective, then you see in every problem a moment to be better. And everything that felt like it was taken away from us or a period of adversity, we said we're not gonna allow that to happen. It's going to be a moment to invent something new. And I can say that for all the harrowing challenges we've gone through, every single moment, I think, did make us better. And I think we are a better company now because of it. I do want to thank you for the drag queens in Portugal experience. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't which... have been brought to the world. Do you know how much money they've made? How much? $100,000 a month to host a one-hour 
and at time experience over Zoom teaching Sangria, and they're making 100000 a month. It's incredible, Alan. I'm going to share all the details with you later. I haven't seen it. It is incredible, and it brings so much joy. So that is a beautiful, a beautiful outcome from that innovation is the joy that we and the imagination that you showed. But I wanted to before we talk about the layoffs, because we really should talk about that because yeah. you're, it was so painful and your letter was so beautiful. I'm curious if you have any advice for other leaders who are not necessarily constitutionally oriented to that kind of perspective. How can you coach someone through something like that? Luckily, I've, or not so luckily, I guess, we have been through so many crises um, at Airbnb. It's hard to start at me and not go through a lot of crisis that we were pretty well prepared. I think to go through a crisis, the most important thing is to be very, very clear about your principles. What you'll notice in a crisis is it's not clear who's in charge. People are debating endlessly topics, and you're not even sure why you're debating, like what you're going to agree to. So every time you have a very difficult decision, what I try to do is write out what the principles are. So I'll just give you an example. For the layoff, I wrote down like five principles. I said, if we have to do this layoff, we're going to map all reductions to our future business strategy and the capabilities we need. The second principle, we're going to do as much as we can for those who are impacted. Third principle, we're going to be unwavering in our commitment to diversity. Fourth, we're going to optimize for one-on-one communication. And fifth, we're not going to communicate till we've landed the details. Well, these five principles, which could seem kind of obvious, let's just be clear, they're actually contradictory to almost how all layoffs are ever done. They're almost never done that way. They're never completely from the heart. And it's not because people can't speak from the heart, but they're protecting themselves. They usually can go further than they are. They're not usually um, spoken to. They're not really mapped to the business. And so I always felt like it was really clear to have our principles. So I wrote down who our stakeholders were. I ordered them. I said, the number one thing we need to prioritize is company viability, our cash balance, our brand. We need to make sure this platform exists. Then we need to make sure we're managing our very best super host. We need to make sure we're pr- protecting our guests. We need to then make sure that our very best employees are taken care of. And we need to make sure that we're not harming communities, we're supporting them. And that we need to make sure that shareholders actually are benefiting. We actually looked at every single stakeholder as we're making every decision. And not everything works for everyone, but it is possible to design systems where everyone kind of can benefit if you just think about them. And people have this erroneous notion that there's this thing called trade-offs and that you must prioritize somebody over the other. I just call that an incomplete design. You can actually design a system that could work for everyone. And for me, this made sense because we're a community. A community, the word community really means harmony. Harmony means many things in balance. So it's not about like for employees to win, shareholders have to get screwed over. There's a harmony that can't happen. But let's talk about achieving that harmony. Because as you said, you have to balance the concerns of your investors against the concerns of your employees, against the concerns of your hosts. How did your shareholders take that? I mean, what was the view of your investors about the approach you were taking? Well, luckily, we have a lot of support because I think people, our investors knew early on what they were signing up for when they signed up for Airbnb. But we, like, let's take the layoff for a second. We went against or we did things that were kind of not viewed as typical. So the first, a couple things. Number one, a lot of mistakes people make when they do a layoff is they don't actually cut deep enough. And that actually does a disservice. The reason it's a disservice is because 
there's a whole bunch of people put in limbo. And then if you do another cut, it's just really bad for the culture. So the first lesson was you have to cut, cut deep enough and do it once. The next principle we want to make sure we did, though, is the following, that it would be better if you had a budget, it's better to cut deeper and be more generous then don't cut as deep and be less generous with employees. I mean, if you just had to pick two, the people would benefit if everyone who had an adverse impact, you were really generous. And we looked at what other companies did and we decided to go above and beyond because our basic principle is whatever it cost us now, it's de minimis in the future and it matters a lot more to the employees. And I think that the general dogma here is maybe a tad conservative for the benefit you get when people really believe in what you're doing. So we decided to give everyone 14 week severance in the United States plus a week per year service. Most people give like a few months of healthcare. We decided to give everyone in the United States a year of healthcare. We decided to let them keep their laptops because you need your laptop to get more work. Taking away someone's laptop in a pandemic is disconnecting from the world. And maybe the most unorthodox thing we did, and if there's one thing that I hope other people who are in this position can take, is something we did that costs very little money. We decided to take a percentage of our recruiters and dedicate them to helping everyone that was getting laid off, all 1,900 people, get a job. So we created a dedicated team for them. And I had heard from people outside the company who thought this was a bad idea. Why do you want to make it easier for your competitors and others to take your talent? And I just felt like because our principle shouldn't be Airbnb, our principle should be helping people, our employees. And if we help them, they'll want to come back when we're ready to rehire. Our own employees are going to believe in us and they're going to like want to work harder. And frankly, like if these companies can hire from us anyway, the number one protection from poaching is goodwill. So honestly, sometimes doing the right thing also is best for your own self-preservation anyway. And then we did one last thing. We decided to create, and this was totally free, an alumni talent directory where we allowed all employees to publish their LinkedIn profiles so that if you want to hire anyone at Airbnb, there'd just be a site we published. I put it out with the team. 300,000 people within a week visited their profiles. And I think quite a few people have now gotten a job. And then we created an alumni program. We said, anyone that wants to come back, you're going to get a first look at all new jobs. Now, if you look at how most companies do layoffs, they do a percentage of this. But I think a lot of times it's just convention. Something's done because it's always been done that way. And I think these are unusual times and we should rip apart dogma. Let's not look at how things used to be done because these are new times. Let's look at it very differently. And when you do, you start to have like really basic principles. Maybe the only other thing I'd say, because I know I'm going on pretty long, is the following. We just decided to be super transparent with employees each step of the way. You know, a classic thing when somebody's confronted having to do a layoff, they don't want to speak to the employees because they want to avoid answering hard questions. We made a decision that I was going to do a Q&A every week where I would look in the camera and any question that was asked for me, no matter how hard it was, no matter how many times I got asked that there would be a layoff, I would answer the question as honestly as I could. And I thought the most important thing I can have is trust. Even if I tell you things you don't want to hear, I'll be better off if you trust me. And you'll trust me if you think I'm telling you the truth and being straight with you. And so I told employees, no matter how hard this is, I'll be in this journey with you one week at a time. And that was really important. I think at the end of the day, so much of business comes down to trust and love. You have to genuinely love the people you work with and you have to engender trust by being honest with them. If you do those two things, then knowing you have to speak them, look in the eye every week, that becomes your North Star to doing the right thing, I think. 
You know what I hear when you talk this way, Brian, it was very inspiring. And thank you for walking us through your thinking here. It's something akin to having principles. The key to managing stakeholders, however you define them, is the willingness and ability to share their fear. And all of it's going to be very, very different. It's going to come from very different places. So listening to you talk about that and the thought process by which how you could address the fear and the very specific needs that everybody in your harmonious ecosystem had is really impressive. So I wanted to just bookmark that. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, leadership in crisis is very different than in normal times. You have to make these gut-wrenching trade-offs and very fast decisions. What kind of advice do you give to leaders who are navigating these very choppy waters? There are a few critical dimensions that have to come together seamlessly. You obviously need to be able to get to the right decisions quickly, and that takes the ability of the executive team and the board to synthesize large volumes of information, to make sense out of uncertainty, but just as importantly, communicate those decisions effectively to take your whole organization on the journey, demonstrating a sense of calm and confidence, finding that balance of delivering candor and straight talk, while at the same time laying out a vision that's optimistic instilling confidence that great organizations will come through challenging times with strength. There has to be a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not an easy task. I actually view being realistic and credible around the current situation as the price of admission to be able to talk to your people about a more optimistic future. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, this hasn't just been a health crisis and an economic crisis. We've now had on top of it a serious crisis in terms of public feelings about racial injustice. And that's that's a topic that has hit Airbnb close to home. There have been accusations that people with African-American names are discriminated against on the platform, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about how you've been responding to that? The reason we go to work every day is to connect people. And if we do our job well, people will feel like they belong in the communities they go to. The biggest obstacle to feeling connected and like you belong to a community is discrimination. And Joe, Nate, and I were three white guys. We started the company 12 years ago, and we were not fully conscious of the kind of ways our platform could be misused. Um, Had I not been white, maybe I would have been more mindful of it. Well, 2016, we got a big wake-up call because there was that hashtag on Twitter that was trending, and it was Airbnb while black, hashtag Airbnb while black. Black users and guests, primarily in the United States, were describing experiences of trying to book homes and feeling discriminated against from homeowners and, and hosts. This became an existential crisis. And so at the time, I basically declared it a crisis. One of my principles I wrote is usually executives try to do what's expected of them and that we should do what's more expected. Whatever we do, people better say, I can't believe Airbnb did that, not Airbnb finally did that. And so I said, what will the world look like in five or 10 years? Let's quickly skate to where the puck is going. Let's get there sooner. And so we brought in Laura Murphy from the ACLU, Eric Holder. Um, We did a diversity report. We created an anti-discrimination team, um, and we did a bunch of work. It all culminated in a project that we announced called Project Lighthouse. It was 
two years in development. We did it with partner a color of change and other civil rights and leading privacy groups. And the basic idea was this. We get phone calls all the time of people telling us they felt discriminated against. The problem is we can't assume those are anecdotes. We don't have a systematic way to measure bias and discrimination on our platform. And I don't think any internet company has ever measured systematically the bias and discrimination on their platform. If you could, wouldn't we learn a lot? So we wanted to do that. But we didn't want to violate people's privacy. And so, again, we came with some principles. Principles like we aren't going to just measure this problem by anecdotes. We're going to measure it with systematic data. Number two, we're going to allow people to opt out of this research. Number three, we're going to make sure that we share with the world what we're doing this data and our progress. And so we started working on a way to collect perceived race data of users. Perceived race is really the only thing you should look at because people don't know people's race. They only perceive their race and discriminate based on their photo and their name. And we developed a way to essentially decouple people's perceived race from their accounts in accordance with the privacy group's guidelines they gave us. And what we're going to now do is take this data to measure unconscious bias and systemic discrimination that we see. And we want to use that to redesign our products. And I want to also open source all the data and all the learnings so other companies can copy us. Because I honestly think this, the industry, we can work together to combat bias. But it, somebody just told me recently, like, it can't just be a bunch of CEOs making like, you know, these public statements and then you put a little post in your Instagram posts, you say you're outraged, you do like some fireside chat with your employees, and then you kind of move on. It goes to business as usual. This problem can't be business as usual. It's got to be a sustained commitment. So that's what we're doing outside the building. And then inside the building, like every other technology company I'm aware of, we have a lot more work to do on discrimination. So we've committed to 20% of our board and executive team being people of color by the end of next year. And we're working on 2025 uh, diversity goals that are hopefully quite audacious and push us beyond our comfort zone. So those are some of the things we're doing. But all this is to say, we're not excellent. We got to get our own house in order. And we have a choice. We can either be a mirror to society as it is and bring all those ills onto our platform. And we can make excuses for it, by the way. And we can say like, you know, we're a platform and excuse it away, or we can make a different choice. We can make a choice to be a mirror of what we wish society would look like in the future. And I think that any internet platform company years from now, they're going to be judged by what they did. And I think history won't look kindly on those who could have did more and did not. And so I think I always think in these times about our legacy and how we'll be remembered, not for purposes of ego, but maybe because it's kind of like a North Star, right? Like history has a way of proportionalizing people's actions. And so I think that's been an important thing for us. So now we're looking 10, 15 years ahead. The anti-bias work that you're doing is infiltrating. It's making a difference. What Airbnb are you building for that world? Oh, it's a great question. And it maybe leads to the most important thing I have not said yet. When we started Airbnb, it was not about travel. It wasn't even about real estate. It was about connecting people. It was started for a design conference. It was a way to meet people, bring people together. And over time, something happened. We grew. Hundreds of millions of people used our platform. We raised billions of dollars. And we got a little unfocused. And we started doing a lot of things that were noble and worthy, but they weren't really about connecting people very directly. And so there's something about staring into the abyss, 
something about a crisis that clarifies what's truly important. You ask yourself, if I was about to lose everything, what don't I want to lose? And what I didn't want to lose, what we wanted to hold on to, was the thing that made us most special, the reason we started this. We wanted to get back to our roots, back to our roots of belonging, connection, of everyday people that host their homes and experiences. So that's what we're doing. So we put on pause our efforts in transportation, content. We've scaled back our ambitions around hotels and many other efforts. But what we haven't scaled back is our ambition to bring people together, to connect them. And so I'm hoping 10, 15 years from now, this is what it looks like. We are a leading expert on belonging connection. We've open sourced all of our information around diversity and the progress we've made. We've invented dozens of new ways beyond sharing your home or having an experience for people to be brought together, new ways to host. And you think like if Apple's known as a technology company who makes tools for people to be empowered, that we're known for being the business of hosting and will be offers connection. And when it works out, you know, it doesn't work at all time. You feel like you belong in the communities all over the world and the world can feel a little bit smaller, you know, if, if we do our job right. And I don't say all that to say we're changing the world or making the world a better place. No one wants to hear another internet CEO say those words. You got to prove it. And so, now these are my, these are my hopes and desires, but we got to walk the walk and it's going to be a long road up that mountain over the next 15 years, but that's our North star. And I think belonging and diverse in discrimination, they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Brian, one last question. Before the pandemic hit, you were sitting there on the verge of an IPO. It was the most (laughs) exciting thing going on in the markets. You say your business is coming back pretty fast. Obviously, the markets remain strong. You're going to get back to that IPO quickly? Yeah, I think so. We don't know when, but... You know, I had read reports of people saying there's no way Airbnb can go public this year. You know, and this was written in April, May, even recently. And I always thought those words were a little premature. This world's changing way too fast. So at this point, I can tell you that we're not committing to going public this year, but we are absolutely not ruling it out. And every week, every month that the recovery is stronger, the market's more stable, we gain more optionality. So we don't have a timeline right now. But we haven't ruled it out. And so, um, by the way, we were ready before, pretty much. I mean, we were going to file March 31. So it's really a matter of when's the world ready for us. And when they are, we'll be there. Great conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 